Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Father God, we've entered into the season of waiting that is called Advent. We're told by Isaiah the prophet that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Lord, that's the desire that we have during this season of Advent, that we would renew our failing strength. That we would have new strength in faith, hope, and love. I pray that. Strengthen our faith, strengthen our hope, strengthen our love as we wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So yes, during Advent we are waiting, and we're waiting for Christmas with Isaiah. That's what we are focusing on on Sunday mornings heading toward Christmas. Isaiah was an 8th century poet, prophet, who lived in Jerusalem. And from his poems, we, we have... We find what we have come to think of as Christmas themes because it's, it's from these poems of Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. that we first hear about a virgin conceiving and giving birth and a baby whose name will be Emmanuel, God with us, and that the government will be upon his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of those Christmas themes are given to us by Isaiah. And so today on the second Sunday of Advent, it's uh, when the lion lays down with the lamb. Another Christmas theme. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Isaiah begins his Root of Jesse poem, that's what this is, his Root of Jesse poem with the image of a a stump, something that was once a tree, once held promise, is now just reduced to a stump. It's lifeless, it's not flourishing, it can't bear fruit, it's nothing more than a stump. Well, this stump is uh, the family or the dynasty of David. There was a time when the idea was that this line of kings that begins with David would fulfill Moses' vision of filling the earth with a righteousness that comes from God, a a right living, a, a new way of organizing human society that has its roots in the Torah and the Ten Commandments and then this king. This man after God's own heart, David. And God makes promises to the household of David and says, there will always be someone to sit upon the throne. And the, the promises are actually quite grand that someday all of the nations will bow down before one of the descendants of David. Now, David is the first king of this dynasty. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the, the poet king. His son, of course, is Solomon. And Solomon is famous. And 
Israel reaches a high level of grandeur under the reign of Solomon, but Solomon is not only the son of David, Solomon is the son-in-law of Pharaoh. Don't forget that. Solomon is not just the son of David, he's the son-in-law of Pharaoh. And over his 40-year reign, he became more and more and more like his father-in-law Pharaoh and less and less like his father David. So that at the end of his 40-year reign, he's actually building temples to the pagan gods of Egypt. The next king is Rehoboam, and he was a disaster, and there was a civil war, and thereafter most of the kings of Judah were terrible, and they did not produce the fruit of righteousness that Moses had envisioned. By the time we get to Isaiah's Root of Jesse poem, um, the, the dynasty or the Davidic dynasty is just a failed vision. And the stump, the stump that he presents in this poem, this vision, this, is, this speaks to the deep failure of the Davidic dynasty. It's been 250 years now, so it's roughly about the same length as the United States. So as we think about George Washington, so Isaiah would have been thinking about David, and it's been two and a half centuries, and now that which began with the promises of God has become little more than just another Middle East corrupt monarchy. And so hope has been dashed. But in the face of spent hope, the poet imagines a marvelous thing. This is how prophetic imagination works. Isaiah presents... Uh, the situation as the picture of a stump. This was the Davidic dynasty that was supposed to be so great and now it's just a dead old stump. But he says, but wait, 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 wait. Out of this stump, someday, I don't know when, there's going to grow, and you got to see the image, uh, a new shoot. Sometimes he calls it a shoot. Sometimes he calls it a root. But something's going to begin to grow up and it's going to be green and it's going to be flourishing and it's going to fill the world with the fruit of righteousness and justice. Can you see? That's, this is how prophetic imagination works. Okay, the situation is like a stump that's dead and lifeless, but the story is not over yet because out of the stump, there's going to grow a new shoot that is going to bear fruit. In other words, that from the royal line of David, hope will spring anew. That from the royal line of David, a king who will come, who will eventually fulfill God's promises and Israel's hopes. Isaiah doesn't say when. He has no idea when. He just says, the day will come. Verse 2. And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. From this seemingly failed house of David, an unnamed king will come on the scene. Isaiah doesn't give us his name. He doesn't know his name. And he doesn't know when this king will come. He just says it's going to happen. That, that out of this dead old stump, a new shoot is going to grow. And guess what? This king is going to be anointed by the Spirit of Yahweh. You know, ancient is Ancient kings of Israel were, were, were anointed. That is, that is the, the inauguration ceremony would involve pouring a horn of oil on their head. And that's where we get 
That's where we get the word Mashiach, which means Messiah, which translated is Christ. Christ means christened one or anointed one. And Isaiah says, you know what's going to happen? I know the house of David looks like it's all done for. It's just a dead stump. But out of that house of David, there's going to come a new shoot. And there's going to be a new king. And he's going to be anointed not just with a horn of olive oil. He's going to be anointed with the spirit of Yahweh. The very spirit of Yahweh is going to be poured on. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know when his, what his name is. But I know it's going to happen. And he gives us this picture, this vision. Now, this shoot from David will be what Isaiah has earlier called in an earlier poem that we're not looking at during Advent. In Isaiah 9, he says, well, he'll be a wonderful counselor. He'll, he'll be a prince of peace. Well, this is that same thing. He keeps, just re, he keeps working on this anticipation. You can see how, you know, seven centuries, seven, eight centuries before, I don't want to give it away, but we're actually talking about Jesus. <clears throat> seven centuries B.C., you can see how Isaiah's poems formed the Messianic hope for the Messiah. What do we know about Messiah? Well, according to the prophet Isaiah, he's going to come from the line of David. He's got to come from the line. You know, that's why those genealogies at the beginning of Matthew and Luke are so important. They're showing you, yeah, he did. In fact, he comes from the line of David, from the house of David, from the root of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. So root of Jesse is one, is a poetic way of saying the house of David. So we know there's this, this, this Messianic king has to come from the line of David, and this king has to be anointed with the spirit of the living God. Verse 4. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. All right, when this Messiah, this anointed king comes, and Isaiah has no idea when that will be, his reign will be marked by a couple of things, justice for the poor and fairness for the exploited. In Isaiah's day, in the 7th, 8th century B.C., and he talks about this in the opening of his book, and really his first poem in Isaiah 2, Isaiah talks about this. He says, you know, one of the big problems is, is that the rich have bought up all the land. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The rich have bought up all the land. And now those that aren't rich, those that aren't the 1%, they have to live as tenant farmers, sharecroppers. And they just keep, they, they, they can't ever get out of debt. They can't ever, the rich keep getting richer and the, de- and the poor just can't ever get out of debt. It's, it's structural economic injustice. It's completely contrary to what Moses set up. They were supposed to have the year of Jubilee every 49 years. 49 years and then the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. And all of that land goes back to the original families. But they weren't doing that. Because you can imagine, you know, some rich guy that has 10,000 acres, you know, and it's all of a sudden the year of Jubilee. He wouldn't like the idea of, okay, now you got to give all this stuff that you've accumulated over the last half century. you got to now give it back to its original families. That, that, that's their inheritance. That's the law of Moses. But they weren't doing that. And then also, there was a problem. So what does it say? What's the text say? 
He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. Because the other problem was uh, the courts ruled in favor of the rich and the powerful. They were bribed. The judges were bribed. And, you know, the poor people couldn't get a fair shake. They couldn't get justice in the courts. They, were, they suffered from systematic economic injustice. They suffered from injustice in the courts. But Isaiah says, but, you know, when this king, this shoot that's going to come out of the root of Jesse, when this king comes anointed by the Spirit of Yahweh, he's going to fix all that. He's going to change that. Some things are going to change. The righteous king will rule with the force of his word. There's no reference to a sword in his hand, but one breath from his mouth. And the wicked are destroyed. He's going to rule with the, the force of his word. One breath from his mouth. And the wicked are destroyed. And then the poet gives us a new and fantastical image of what the reign of this messianic king will be like. Verse 6. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. So here Isaiah imagines the world of humanity as an animal kingdom. It's a literary device. There's a word for it. It's called zoomorphism. It's where, it's where you depict human beings... As animals, according to the character, it's very common in cartoons, especially children's cartoons. Anybody, uh, anybody familiar with, well, it came out in the 70s, but I think it, then it came out in VHS in the 1980s, uh, the, the Disney production of Robin Hood. Anybody remember that? Remember that? How many of you do remember that? I remember it because all of my kids watched it, but my, my oldest son, Caleb, watched it somewhere around a million times and and we just watched it so so you see there i mean there's there's robin hood he's a fox uh prince john he's one of the bad guys he's he's a lion see he's a lion and he's got all of his money his assistant is a snake uh little john is a bear uh friar tuck is a badger the sheriff of nottingham he's a bad guy he's a wolf uh some other bad guys are vultures and crocodiles. Some of the good guys are rabbits and turtles. All right, so you, this is basically what Isaiah is doing. Um, this is his prophetic imagination at work. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. You have to think of the movie the Disney animated movie Robin Hood to get this. If you literalize the poem, you miss the whole point. If you literalize it and say, oh, we're waiting for the day when the carnivores become herbivores. <laughs> Isaiah isn't worried about lions eating antelopes. That's not what's wrong with the world. Isaiah is worried about human predators. He's worried about human wolves and human leopards and human lions. See? He says, he says, in that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. Because he's already said that this Messiah will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. And this is another way of how he envisions it. 
Because, you see, it's okay. It's okay for beasts to behave beastly. It's okay for a leopard to eat a baby goat. Part of the way it works. Cycle of life, man. It's okay for the leopard to eat the goat. It's not okay for humans who bear the image of God to behave beastly. Humans are set apart because we've been gifted the Imago Dei. The image of God. We're created in the image of God. And so it's okay for a beast to behave beastly. It's okay for the lion and the leopard and the wolf to behave beastly. It's not okay for human beings to behave beastly. Because we've been called to bear the image of God. It's not okay for humans and empires to be beasts who exploit the poor. This is the theme. Daniel, in his book, works on this. And he says, well, here's the problem with the world. We've had all of these beastly governments. And he talks about first one's a lion, and then one's a bear, and then one's a leopard, and then one's just a beast, and it just keeps getting worse. But then he says, but then the Son of Man comes, a human being. That They're all kings and kingdoms, but he says they've all been beastly, but there's going to be one that comes from the heavens. And the Son of Man is going to be humane and not beastly. And then this... This image gets recycled into the book of Revelation. The beastly exploitation of the weak is something that the root of Jesse will change. Are you with me? This this is the messianic vision given to us by Isaiah. Isaiah looks and says, man, the rich are taking advantage of the poor. The whole system's rigged in their favor. And the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And they can't get, what does he say? How does, how does Isaiah say it? He says, and the exploited don't have fair decisions made for them. But he says, when this root of Jesse, when this, this new shoot coming out of the Davidic dynasty, when he comes, he's going to change some things. And the poor are going to be provided for. And the exploited are going to get the fairness and the justice that they deserve. That's the vision. And it's going to happen by His Word. By His Word, Messiah will bring about change in the hearts and minds of human beasts. So instead of behaving beastly toward the vulnerable, they will behave humanely. Or to put it more poetically, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Of course, we Christians... How many Christians do we have here today? All right. Of course, we Christians... Confess, now, non-Christians, I I don't know what to say, except believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We Christians confess that Jesus Christ is the root of Jesse. I mean, Isaiah doesn't know his name. We know his name. So I brought my root of Jesse icon up with me. I like it. You know, it's got Jesus growing up out of, there's this root. This will be Jesse from which you get David in the Davidic line. But now Jesus has grown up out of that. And then there's some other prophets and apostles that are springing out from him because he's also the vine and we are the branches. That sort of concept is in this icon. But Jesus is the root. It's one of of the Messianic titles for Isaiah didn't know who he was. He said, I'll just call him the root of Jesse. I don't know who it is. We know who it is. It's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so 
It's this messianic king who causes the lion to lay down with the lamb. We also confess, I mean, we're, we're headed towards Christmas. And what is Christmas? Christmas is the birth of this king that Isaiah is anticipating. So we say that the day for the lion to lay down with the lamb has come. And you are incredulous. You're saying, well, I, I mean, okay, but does the lion ever really lay down with the lamb? Yes. Yes. For example, in Jericho, there lived a wolf that was preying upon the lambs. This wolf was devouring the little lambs of Jericho. The name of this wolf was Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now see, the problem is, because we already know that tax collectors respond favorably to Jesus, we think of them as the good guys. They're not the good guys. They're the people that get saved, but they're not good guys. Here's how it worked. You would, if you wanted to be a tax collector, you'd already have to be somewhat wealthy. Because what you would do is you would bid. Remember, remember Rome is occupying Judea. So the land of the Jews is occupied by the Romans. And what the Romans want is taxes. They want money. They want gold coming into Rome. But they've had a long history of this. They've been doing this for a couple of centuries now. And they've learned that to send Roman tax collectors into these occupied lands is problematic. And so what you would do is you would get the local people to collect taxes for Rome. And you would do it like this. You would, you would make a bid and you would say, Caesar, I think I can get $20 million of tax revenue out of this district. And if you had the highest bid, then you got the commission. And you now are authorized by the Roman government to impose taxation upon the local populace of which you belonged. Now you had to come through because you could not. No, 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 you can't mess around with Rome. You couldn't say, I came up short. You've got to get that 20 million out of them. And how do you make your money? Well, whatever you get beyond the 20 million goes right in your pocket. And so Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. It'd be like this. You, you, you have your little shop there in, in Jericho. You're just trying to get by. You can just barely get by. You're just barely getting by. And one day Zacchaeus comes in. He didn't come in alone. He's got his muscle with him. He's got three other guys, you know. They've got some clubs. They're walking in there. And, you're, and Zacchaeus comes up to you and says, I'm going to need $1,000 by Friday. And uh, those guys, those great big thugs over there, you know, with their clubs, you know, they're kind of poking around and some of your stuff on the shelves and some of it falls off and you don't dare say a word. Because Zacchaeus says, if I don't have my $1,000 by Friday, it'd be a shame, you know, something happened to this place. He's a wolf. He's, he's not working for the IRS. You know, a little bureaucrat in an office. He is a collaborator with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the beast. And this one that collaborates with them has become beastly himself. He's a wolf. 
And he takes advantage of people and they're afraid of him. And he exploits them. He's a wolf. He's devouring the little lambs of Jericho. One day, the root of Jesse comes to Jericho. We know his name by now. He's Jesus of Nazareth. This wolf has heard about him. He's fascinated because he's heard of the miracles and all that Jesus is doing. He wants to see him. So he climbs a tree. I didn't know wolves could climb trees, but this one could. This wolf climbed up in a tree. And when Jesus came underneath the tree where the wolf was, he looked up and said, Hey, Mr. Wolf, Zacchaeus, why don't you just come on down because I'd like to have dinner in your house. And everybody is upset. He said, how come, how come Jesus doesn't go to the house of one of the little nice lambs? How come Jesus is going to go to the house of the wolf that's eating us up, that's devouring us? But Jesus goes to the house of the wolf. But before dinner is over, the wolf stands up and says, you know what? Jesus, I'm going to give away half of my wealth to the poor. And if I have defrauded anybody, I'm going to restore to them fourfold. And Jesus says, "Ah, today salvation has come to this house. Because this wolf too is a son of Abraham. And the wolf... Lies down with the lamb. You ever heard the story of St. Francis and the wolf of Gubbio? You know the legend of St. Francis? The story goes there was this wolf near this village of Gubbio in Umbria in central Italy. And this wolf was devouring some of the townspeople. And St. Francis comes and goes out and has a conversation with the wolf. Says, now Mr. Wolf, shame on you for eating up the fine people of Gubbio. We're going to have to come to some agreement here. Uh, How about if if the townspeople provide you with some food, and then you, on your part, you promise to stop devouring them. And as the the legend goes, uh, St. Francis even had the the wolf put its paw print, you know, it signed this document with its paw print. (laughs) I've been to Assisi, and I had a, Francis scholar, Marco, he's living in Assisi all his life. He's a Francis scholar. He told me, he said, that's, that's not a legend. That really happened, but it wasn't a wolf wolf. It was a human wolf. It was one of the local noblemen that was losing peasants to the emerging mercantile class in the town. And in his wrath, he was attacking them. And Francis came and mediated and brought peace to the situation so that the wolf of Gubbio began to lie down with the lamb. In the early years of the church in Jerusalem, in the first decade or so of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem, there was a lion devouring the lambs. There was a lion that was attacking the flock. There was a lion in Jerusalem in the first decade after the resurrection of Jesus that was trying to destroy the entire flock. This lion's name was Saul of Tarsus. This lion was present when Stephen was stoned. This lion was going into the flock and dragging these sheep before the authorities. And they were imprisoned and some were put to death. This lion was trying to scatter the flock, trying to destroy the flock. Finally, this lion got arrest warrants to move up north 
and go attack the flock up in Damascus. And this lion known as Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus when Jesus comes and says, Lion, lion, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he hit the ground and he laid down with the lamb. And this lion that had been devouring the flock not only laid down with the lamb, he became a lamb. He not only became a lamb, he became a shepherd. See, it happens. And then this former sheep-devouring lion, Saul of Tarsus, that we know as the Apostle Paul, he had a dream one night and he saw a man over in Greece in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so Paul and Silas went to the capital of Macedonia, a Roman colony by the name of Philippi. And while they were there, they got in trouble with the local authorities, got in, got in trouble with the Roman local authorities. And as part of their punishment, they were beaten with rods. Beaten with rods. Beaten with rods. And this, this uh, it's torture. This torture was inflicted upon them probably by the local dungeon keeper, the jailer. He was a, I don't know, you pick the beast. Was he a leopard? Was he a hyena? He was a beast. He, he also worked for the big beast, the dragon, the big beast in Rome. He worked for the big beast in Rome, and he's in the Roman colony Philippi. And he is using torture on Paul and Silas because he's a beast himself, maybe a hyena, a wolf, something like that. And then he puts them in his jail. He puts them in stocks. You know, stocks, their feet. So they've been beaten. Their wounds have not been treated. They've not been washed. They're all beaten and bloody and bruised. And they're put in the, and this, this beast puts them in these stocks because he's a beast. He believes in torture. About midnight, Paul and Silas were singing hymns of praise to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then a big earthquake hits. And the earthquake was so powerful that their chains were broken, snapped off. The stocks fell apart and the doors of the prison swung wide open. The beast, who is the jailer, gets a lantern and he runs down to his prison and he sees the doors open. He said, well, that's that. I'm done for. All the prisoners have escaped and I know what that means. I'm going to have to pay for my life. Might as well end it right now. And he pulls out his sword and he's getting ready to kill himself. And Paul says, hold on there. Hold on. Stop. Don't do it. Do yourself no harm. We're all still here. And that beast came in and he fell down on his knees before Paul and Silas says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Saved from what? Saved from what I've made of myself. I'm a torturer. I'm an animal. I'm a beast. I'm a cruel man. I see that you're not like that. Is there any hope for me? I've deformed my soul. I've ruined my soul. I've become a torturer. What can I do to be saved? And Paul says, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's the root of Jesse. He's the one that will slay the beast within with a word from his mouth. That's what happened to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. The root of Jesse slayed him with a word from his mouth. And he was no longer a lion again. So Paul tells this torturer, this beast, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be rescued. You'll be salvaged. You'll be restored. You'll be saved. You and your whole household. And that very night, Paul baptizes the Philippian jailer. And the Philippian jailer then brings Paul and Silas into his house in such a tender scene. And it says, he washed their wounds. The wounds that most probably he had inflicted. And he's tending to those wounds. And putting bandages on them. And then he prepares a meal for them. And they sit at the table. This one that he had, these ones he had beaten and put in stocks. Now he tends their wounds and receives them at his table and feeds them. The lion had laid down with the lamb. So you see it really is true when people meet Jesus. And they hear the word. And they believe the word, the breath from his mouth. The lion lays down with the lamb. All right, let's, let's bring it on home. Last verse, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will be a banner of salvation to all the world. What must I do to be saved, said that beast? The apostle said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and your household. He just lifted up the banner. In that day, the root of Jesse will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations, the Gentiles, the whole world will rally to him. And the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Jesus Christ is the root of Jesse who tames the beast within our heart. And the church is the glorious place over which the banner of salvation flies. The church is the glorious place where the lion really does lay down with the lamb. Amen. Stand up with me. We heard the story about St. Francis and taming the wolf. I think we ought to pray together before we come to the table of the Lord, the prayer of St. Francis. Pray with me. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. And this is the table, not of the church.